Well, if you got your Bibles, open to Daniel. So I'll pray, then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this day that you've given us to worship you and to learn from your word. And Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it's pure. We thank you that it's inspired, it's God-breathed, every single word. It's completely dependable and reliable. It's our source of strength. It's our source of comfort. It's our source of purity and joy and love, Lord, as you speak to us as we read it. So help us to value your word above everything else and the time in your word above everything else for the sake of our relationship with you because your word says that you value your word or esteem your word higher than your own name so help us to do the same and treat it with the utmost respect in Jesus name amen so this is revelation 13 1 to 10 and it's the antichrist part 2 but like last week we're not going to go into revelation 13 and the reason is is the antichrist is kind of like a big topic it's not just a person it's actually an empire okay so we need to know about the person and the empire and how it all fits together. So, I'll start with this. Would you call me crazy if I claimed I knew the makeup of the final human government and the key decisions that it would make? Would you think I was crazy if I claimed that I knew for certain the makeup of the final human government and the key decisions that it would make? Well, if you knew your Bible, you would say, yes, I know. God wrote it all down in black and white thousands of years before it happened. And we're going to learn about the final government today as part of what we're going to learn about. So, as an aside, why did God reveal so much of the future to us? Don't fear, have hope. Yep, that's good. So, remember, one third of the whole Bible is prophecy. And basically, one of the reasons is so we can be sure of his existence. The fact that hundreds and hundreds of specific prophecies all came true, no mistakes, every detail was true, exactly as it was written, speaks to the reality of a God who is outside of time, who sees all, knows all, is all-powerful, is everywhere at once, and who is in complete control. And I keep saying that, but I'll tell you what, we need to get that in our heads because guess what? As soon as we get in a situation where we get a bit fearful, what do we forget? God's in control. So as we study this, just keep remembering, if God can control the universe and the flow of the nations, he can control our lives too. So just to give you some understanding of how incredibly detailed the prophecies of the then future kingdoms are, like from the point of view of Daniel, they were all future except the Babylonian one. Here is a quote from David Guzek concerning just the prophecies in Daniel chapter 11. The chapter is so specific that many critics who deny supernatural revelation have insisted that it is history, written after the fact, fraudulently claiming to be prophecy. It's so specific, it's so accurate, it's so detailed, 
that the historians say it cannot have been by chance. It's impossible. It's too much. But we know, and you can prove, that Daniel was written before it all happened. So, what does it tell us? Well, God is real. You can use prophecy to prove the existence of God. Bible prophecy will never, ever fail. Now, you know those other prophecies like Nostradamus and that, they're all pretty much vague and general. And if they are specific, like some false prophets have been around, guess what? <laughs> they're easily proved wrong. And that's the thing with the Bible. Because they're so specific, it's easy to show that it's either wrong or it's right. It is inspired by God or it's not. Because if one of those things falls to the ground without coming true, then you know that it's all wrong. Only one has to fall to the ground. Only one has to not come true. But none of them has never fallen to the ground. Every single prophecy has come true. Now, I just want to go and talk about inspiration for about one minute. And I'm going to put this scripture up. It's Mark 12.36. It's Jesus talking about what David wrote down as part of Psalm 110. So Jesus is quoting David, and he says, For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Now, that's just part of a song. The Psalms are songs, but they are a part of the Bible. Every word of them was God-breathed. You know what that means? It means it's given by inspiration of God. So Jesus is saying that the songs that David wrote in the Psalms were given or written, spoken under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the whole Bible is literally God-breathed. So 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, that means mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You need to have a good understanding of the word, otherwise you will not be equipped. And the reason it's so powerful is it's from God. Simple as that. So, last week, what did we do last week? Well, let's get the basics down again. We start with, let's say, the cross there. You can see the cross in the middle of that timeline in the dispensations of the Bible chart. And we have the age of grace, the church age. And then the next prophetic event is what? After the church age. The rapture, yep, very good. So the rapture is what? Yeah, what, what is the rapture? Yes, it's when the church is caught up. Jesus calls up the church to meet him in the air, and we are transformed into our glorified bodies and go on with Jesus to be with him in heaven. Now, a short time after the rapture, something begins. What's that? The peace treaty. Good, the Antichrist confirms a peace treaty. And what's that at the start of? The seven-year what? What's it called? Tribulation. Good, it's the seven-year tribulation. So there's a rapture, then there's a short time period as the Antichrist starts his rise to power, and he's revealed when he confirms the peace treaty. So how do you know who the Antichrist is? 
when the peace treaty is signed and the guy who brokers it is the Antichrist. Okay, very easy. Now, when does the clock start ticking? This tribulation is seven years, according to Daniel and Revelation. When does the clock start ticking? When the peace treaty is signed. Yeah, very good. And where do you find that? It's Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. So important verse as far as the tribulation goes. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And it says, Then he will confirm the covenant with the many Israel. The covenant is like we call it peace treaty because that's what the world calls it today. Now, halfway through the tribulation, what happens? What happens halfway through the tribulation? Yes. Good. The Antichrist breaks his peace treaty with Israel. He goes into the temple, defiles the temple, and who does he claim to be? God. Yes. He goes into the temple, claims to be God. There's no more pretense now. There's no more Mr. Nice Guy. It's worship Satan and his Antichrist, or what's the other option? Die. So the second half of the seven-year tribulation is called the, by Jesus, in Matthew 24. He calls it the Great Tribulation. And in the Old Testament, this last half of the tribulation is called Jacob's Trouble. It's called Jacob's Trouble. The tribulation overall in the Old Testament is called the Day of Day of the Lord. Okay, so when you read the Day of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's talking about the tribulation. Awesome. Okay. Now, after the tribulation, or the end of the tribulation, what happens? What signifies the end of the tribulation? Return of Jesus Christ, the second coming. That's when the tribulation finishes. He comes back on the dot exactly seven years after. And then what happens? What's the next dispensation, the next period of time after the tribulation? It's a thousand-year rule and reign. What do we call that? What's a thousand years? Millennial reign. The millennial reign of Jesus Christ when he rules the earth with a perfect rule, and we rule with him. We come back to earth with Jesus and rule with him on the earth. So, like Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that's where we got all that from last week, Daniel chapters 2 and 7 are scriptures that give us good or great insight into the Antichrist and his future, but very temporary earthly kingdom. So, I just want to emphasize that Daniel and Revelation fit together like a hand in a glove. Does that make sense? So they work together. Daniel gives the big picture and Revelation fills in the details. Daniel also establishes a timeline into which the events described in the book of Revelation fit into. So many of the signs and symbols that we come across in Revelation are explained in the book of Daniel. And regarding the Antichrist, chapter 7 is really helpful because it explains many of the signs and symbols in Revelation 13, which is the chapter up to in Revelation. They both contain information specific to the Antichrist and the Roman Empire. So today we're going to focus on the Roman Empire.
So, we're going to learn about the rise and fall of the last four main world empires. So, the first part of the message is called the final four world empires. So, keeping it nice and simple. Here's a picture. Who likes pictures? All right. So, in Daniel, in chapter 2 and chapter 7, it has basically the same information, but it's presented differently. In chapter 2, Daniel is given a vision of this massive statue with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, stomach and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron, and feet made of iron and clay. So, basically, they represent four kingdoms. The head of gold is the Babylonian kingdom. They were ruling at the time when Daniel wrote this prophecy. Then, following on from the Babylonian Empire, they were defeated by the Medes and Persians. The Medo-Persian Empire followed after the Babylonian Empire. And then after them, you have the Grecian Empire. They defeated the Medes and Persians, so the Grecian Empire followed after the Medo-Persian Empire. And then after that, the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay represent the Roman Empire, and they defeated the Grecian Empire. So you have these four empires that go from the time of Daniel, and I'll explain how it works in a bit, they go right to the time of Christ. So Daniel 7 also depicts or represents these same four world empires, but they're looked at from another point of view, God's point of view, and God doesn't see things the way we do. It's very interesting. Daniel chapter 2 looks at the same world empires as valuable metals. This is the human point of view. Humanly speaking, we say, wow, that is a huge, powerful, majestic empire. Now, I want to give you an example. The USA, 30 years ago, I can't use today's example of the US, but 30 years ago, you know, most people respected the USA. They were a superpower, not a world power, but a superpower. They had by far the biggest and best armed forces, by far the world's biggest economy, and were very influential. Just about everyone respected them. But do you think God saw them like that? God saw the corruption. God saw the sin. To him, they were just another beast. So in Daniel chapter 7, they are described as various beasts. And there's a reason for their descriptions. So the Babylonian Empire is represented by the lion with eagle's wings. This was actually the national emblem, the lion with eagle's wings. If you go back and look at archaeology. Now, the lion is considered the king of the animal kingdom. You know, the the king of the animals, yeah? Likewise, the Babylonian Empire was considered the most majestic of all the world empires as their kings had absolute control. It was a true dictatorship. Anything the king wanted to do, he could do, and there was no one to stop him. All the other empires had various forms of government where the kings had less power. Now, the Medo-Persian Empire, the next one after the Babylonians, is represented by a bear. Now, the Medes and Persians had very large but slow-moving armies that crushed the opposition. So they would get an army of like a million people 
and they were just overwhelmed by sheer numbers, their opposition, and that's how they conquered their enemies. But the Grecian Empire is described as a leopard with bird's wings. So the leopard is fast, and with bird's wings it's even faster. Now if you know your history, Alexander the Great conquered the world in just a few years, maybe ten years. That's a very, very short period of time back then to conquer the world. His strategy was to have a very small, like fifty to 70,000, I believe, army, but they were very mobile, very highly trained, and they could move very quickly. So they could have the element of surprise, they could strike and retreat, they could do many different strategies. So that's why the Grecian Empire is described as a leopard with the bird's wings. The Roman Empire is simply described as a beast which is too dreadful, too evil, and too destructive to imagine or describe. It's grotesque. It's ugly, basically. And the Roman Empire, if you look back in history, was famous or infamous for the way it oppressed people. So the Roman Empire was very, very oppressive. If you weren't a citizen, you were a slave, and you didn't have any rights. So now we come to something that's really important. If you look at that picture, you can't really see it, but the legs of iron and the toes of iron and clay, so follow with me here, there's two stages to the Roman Empire. The first stage is the two legs of iron. Now why is the Roman Empire represented by two legs of iron? Well, their capital was divided. They had a capital in the east of the empire, and they had a capital in the west of the empire. So the first stage of the Roman Empire began about 168 BC and finally collapsed in about 476 AD and there hasn't been a world empire since. So I'll say that again, there's two legs of iron, had two capitals, the east and the west capital and that's why there were two, two legs of iron. Now, what do the feet of iron and clay represent? Well, they represent what is commonly called the revived Roman Empire. As we go through, I'm going to show this and show it from the scriptures that there's two stages to this Roman Empire. One that's already passed from our point of view and one that's still future. So according to Revelation and Daniel, the revived Roman Empire, the one to come, will rule the world for seven years. Which seven years do you think that is? The tribulation, yeah. Now, people say, oh, the European Union is the revived Roman Empire. Well, it may be, but it may not be. We'll have to wait and see. This revived Roman Empire will be different from the first. It's described as having feet made up of iron and clay. Now, iron represents strength but the clay is very brittle and very weak. So it's going to be both powerful and weak. It's going to have strength, like military strength, but it's not going to have much unity. And I want to give an example of today. If you go into almost any country, what do you find? In America, for example, what do you see happening? You have one half the population against the other half of the population. And if you go to just about any country, there's always 
just almost every country is having riots and there's people fighting against each other. There's very little unity in today's world. Almost every country is experiencing some form of disunity or disharmony. So just imagine that the world was united by a central government right now. Do you think all the people would willingly submit? Or do you think they'd all be wanting to try to get what was best for them? They'd all be trying to get what's best for them. So in today's culture, this description of iron and clay is a really good description of what would happen if today's world was combined and made into one worldwide kingdom. If it's controlled by a central government. So this is what the Antichrist kingdom, the revived Roman Empire, will be like. Iron and clay. Strength, but no unity. Now, what I'm going to do is prove to you from the scriptures that these world empires continue on until the second coming of Christ. So, we're going to have a quick look in Daniel. So we go to Daniel chapter 2. It's Daniel chapter 2 verse 28. I'll just read it to you. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. What do you think latter days means? The last days. In the Old Testament, when it says latter days, it means the end times. So this is happening in the end times. So latter day means the last days. So this vision started with the then current Babylonian kingdom but continues on until the second coming and the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And how do I know that for sure? Apart from that saying the latter days, well, you go to Daniel 2 verse 44. And this is important because a lot of the other different cults and religions and denominations have different opinions on this, but read it for yourself and see what it says, okay? It says, In the days of these kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It, Christ's kingdom, shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, referring to the four kingdoms we just learned about, and it shall stand forever. So this kingdom which will never be destroyed is Christ's kingdom, and it must refer to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. When he reigns over all the earth for a thousand years. Why? Because this kingdom won't be destroyed, but every other kingdom will be. Does that make sense? Christ's kingdom is the only one that will continue and not be replaced by another kingdom. And this promise of Christ's enduring kingdom is repeated in Daniel chapter 7. And this is a parallel passage to Daniel chapter 2. So I'm going to put Daniel chapter 7 up there now. This is the chapter that has the nations as beasts instead of the statue. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 15 to 18. I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen, and my visions terrified me. So I approached one of those standing beside the throne and asked him what it all meant. He explained it to me like this. These four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. So here is the interpretation for the dream. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. All right. The four beasts, remember the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the one that can't be described. 
represent four kingdoms, four world empires that will arise from the earth. But in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will rule for how long? Forever and ever. So, again, the four huge beasts, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the indescribable horrific beast are four world empires that line up or match up with the statue, the head of gold, the arms and shoulders of silver, the stomach and thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron. And then, what does it say in verse 18? It says, but in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom, and they will rule forever and ever. So, we know from Revelation, that the kingdom is called what? The millennial reign of Jesus Christ, when Christ reigns on the earth for a thousand years. Is that that clear? Is it making sense? There's going to be four world empires, and the finish of them is when Jesus comes back and sets up his own. That's basically what I'm trying to communicate here. Does that make sense? All right. So there's four world empires. Four of them have come to pass, and the the second half of the last one, the Roman Empire, is yet to come. But that will finish when Jesus comes back. So I'm going to put this diagram up again, and I'm going to ask you some questions. All right, a bit of revision here. So, from Daniel's time, how many world empires would rise and fall before Jesus' kingdom is established? Four. Very good. Yep. Okay, now, can you tell me what the four world empires are in order of their appearance? Babylon, keep going. The Medo-Persian Empire. The Grecian Empire. And then the Roman Empire. Fantastic. Okay. Now, which kingdom or world empire is in two stages? It's the last one, isn't it? The two legs of iron is the first stage, and then the feet made of iron and clay with the ten toes is the second stage, which is future. So, how is the first stage described? Legs of iron, very good. And is that past, present, or future, from our point of view? Past, yep, it's already been and gone, yep in, what is it, 468 or 457, whatever that date was, dissolved and was defeated. Okay. The second stage of the Roman Empire, how is that described? It starts with feet. Good. Feet and toes made of iron and mixed with clay. Fantastic. Okay, so the second stage is this disjointed, disunified empire. Strong but weak, not united, not having that unity. Now, what's this second stage of the Roman Empire commonly called in Christian circles? It's the revived Roman Empire. Revived meaning it's kind of come back to life, yeah? It's dormant at the moment, but it will come back. Is the second stage of the Roman Empire past, present, or future? It's future. Why? Because he went through those scriptures, and who sets up their kingdom when this last kingdom is ruling? Jesus, right? 
Jesus does. This last kingdom is the Antichrist kingdom. All right, that's important to understand too. I haven't really stated that yet, but this last kingdom is the Antichrist kingdom. We'll find that out. We'll prove that from the scriptures as well. It finishes when Jesus comes back. Has Jesus come back yet? No. So this kingdom is yet future. Okay, make sense? Logical? If it finishes when Jesus comes back, and Jesus hasn't come back yet, and we're not under a worldwide empire, a central government, then it's still future. So when does Jesus come back? At the end of the tribulation, well done, that's good. What's it called when Jesus comes back? Second coming of Christ. Yep, good. And when does this second stage of the Roman Empire, as we call the revived Roman Empire, rule the world? When? During the tribulation. Yep. And roughly how long will the revived Roman Empire rule the world? About the seven-year mark, yeah. And which kingdom follows the revived Roman Empire? Christ's kingdom, the millennial reign. So Jesus comes back. He destroys the Antichrist. He demolishes the governments of this world. And Jesus rules and reigns. And how long does Jesus' kingdom last? It says in Revelation 20. That time frame, a thousand years. And what happens after Jesus' millennial kingdom, which is his kingdom on earth? Then we rule forever and ever on the new heavens and the new earth, because the old one will be destroyed. Okay. Now, all good with that? We're moving on to our next minor topic in this message. It's the final government to rule the world. Remember at the start I said, would you call me crazy if I told you the structure of this government? Well, we know that it's called the Revived Roman Empire. Now we're going to find out more about this Revived Roman Empire. So, back to Daniel 2.44. The ten toes on the statue represent ten kings. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because it says so in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. It says, and in the days of what? These kings. Who are the kings? The ten toes. Now, how do I know that? It's not all that clear there. That's true. Well, we can also get more information because it says in verse 44, when will these ten kings be ruling on the earth? Right before the time when Jesus comes back, during the tribulation. And I want you to also notice that these ten kings rule all at the same time. They're not ten successive kings. It doesn't say, in the days of the tenth king, Jesus comes back. It says, in the days of these kings. Of the ten kings. Now, this is more clear in Daniel chapter 7. So, this is like progressive revelation. The next vision on the same subject gives us more information. So, I'm going to read Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, and then 23 and 24. Then, in my vision that night, I saw a fourth Beast. Now, who's the fourth beast? The Roman Empire, the fourth kingdom, the fourth beast, yeah? Terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains under its feet. 
They're very, very cruel. It was different from any of the other beasts. And it had how many? What? Ten horns. Okay, what does horns represent in Scripture? Power. Yeah, okay. And often the horn refers to a king. But how do we know that for sure? Well, let's keep reading in verse 23, because here is the interpretation to Daniel's vision. And the angel says, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. We read that before. So the Roman Empire, the fourth beast is the Roman Empire. And it says in verse 24, the ten horns, can you finish that? The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. What's this kingdom? The Roman Empire. Okay. The ten horns are the ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire. Now, if that's not clear enough, the Bible says it again in Revelation. On the screen, we've got Revelation chapter 17, verses 12 to 14. Revelation 17, again, is talking about the kingdom of the Antichrist, the revived Roman Empire, the final world empire. And it says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Now, where did we just read that? Back in Daniel. Remember, they fit like a hand in a glove. Who have received no kingdom as yet. So in John's time, this was still future, yeah? But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Now, in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, who is the beast? The Antichrist. So they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast, the Antichrist. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast, the Antichrist. These will make war with the Lamb. This is the battle of Armageddon. And the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. So notice that. We come back with Jesus when he defeats the enemy, and we are called, chosen, and faithful. Pretty cool, eh? So, this is a revision question. Why does the Bible represent these rulers as horns? Because in the Bible, horns signify power. Good. These men will have powerful positions in the last day's world empire. Now, according to Daniel 7.24 and Revelation 17.12, who are the ten horns? Ten kings who shall come from the revived Roman Empire, or the fourth kingdom, the Roman kingdom. And what is the fourth kingdom called again? The Roman Empire, very good. And how are the ten kings represented in Daniel chapter 2, with the feet? The toes, yeah, very good. All right, so you're making the connections now? So in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation, it's like this beast with the ten horns, and those ten horns represent the ten kings. And in Daniel chapter 2, it's represented by the feet, representing that nation, which is both weak and strong, it has ten toes, ten kings. Now, at what stage of the Roman Empire will these ten kings be reigning? Is it the first stage, the legs of iron, or the second stage, the feet of iron and clay? 
the second, isn't it? The feet of iron and clay. All right? That's good. And according to Revelation 17.13, what will the ten kings do when the Antichrist comes on the scene? They're going to yield their authority to the beast. So whatever power they have, they're going to give it to the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to become this all-powerful leader. He is going to rule the world just like Nebuchadnezzar did in the time of Babylon. He will have absolute power. Now, it says one hour. Doesn't mean literally just one hour. I don't think so. We have another interpretation of Scripture in Revelation 3.10. It says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is being spoken to the church. We are going to be kept from the hour of trial. What is the church going to be kept from? The tribulation. So, they will be reigning for one hour. They will be reigning for the tribulation. Back to Revelation 17. According to Revelation 17, 12 to 14, how do we know for sure that all ten of these kings will be reigning at the same time during the tribulation? Have a look at those verses. In verse 12, it gives you a hint. There's three hints here, one on each verse. Yep, how do you know they're going to rule at the same time? Because many people think that these ten horns are ten successive kings. What I want to prove from Scripture is that they rule at the same time. Yes, they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. It's not ten successive kings, it's ten kings at the same time, ten people who rule the world, who give their authority to the beast, the Antichrist. Okay. It says in verse 13, they have one mind, and they give their power and authority to the beast. We've kind of covered that already. And in verse 14, there's another big hint. It says, these, who's, who are these? The ten kings. They will make war with the lamb. Now, can they do that if there were like ten kings before? They have to be there at the time to make war with the lamb. They are going to help the Antichrist make war against Jesus. And then Jesus comes back and he destroys them all at the same time. And that's called, when Jesus comes back and he destroys all his enemies, including the Antichrist, the Battle of Armageddon. And that's the end of the tribulation. Okay. So, if someone says, no, 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 you're crazy. Those, those ten horns are ten successive kings of the Roman Empire that's past history. Now you know how to prove from Scripture that they are ten kings who have not appeared yet and they will rule at the same time as the Antichrist and they will be there when Jesus comes back. The Battle of Armageddon, the end of the tribulation. So, I'm giving you a little bit of a taste of inductive Bible study. How to tease things apart. How to pull the Bible apart and break things down so you can observe things, interpret things, and apply what is written in the Bible. So, what we need to understand from Daniel's visions in chapters 2 and 7 of Daniel, is that all of these kings will be ruling at the same time and their reigns will be all cut short or terminated when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. So, quick revision. When does Jesus come back to the earth? 
End of the tribulation. Good. What's it called? Second coming of Christ. Now, given that Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation and these ten kings are still reigning when Jesus comes back, when will these ten kings be reigning on the earth? It has to be during the tribulation. Make sense? So we just proved from the scriptures that the last world government is going to be ruling the world. There's going to be ten leaders and they will give their authority to the beast, the Antichrist, who will then be the ultimate leader. So now we turn our attention to the Antichrist. We've learned about where the Roman Empire came from. We've learned about the structure of the government. It's going to have ten leaders who will give their authority to the Antichrist. Now we're going to learn about the Antichrist himself. So we've learned that in the last days there's going to be a kingdom, a world empire, that will last for how long? About seven years. It's going to be governed by how many kings? Ten kings. So how does the Antichrist fit into this last days revived Roman Empire? Well, we need to read Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 25. And this is our last bit of text we're going to read today. So this part of the talk is called the Antichrist during the Tribulation. This is when we learn about how the Antichrist fits into this kingdom. So, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. So this is Daniel chapter 7, verses 19 to 25, and I've skipped some of the verses in there to make it a bit quicker. And the ten horns, verse 20, that were on its head. So whose head? The fourth beast, the Roman Empire. Now, it says in verse 25, and the other horn which came up. Now, who could that be? Which came up, this horn, this powerful king. The Antichrist, he came up, he was rising to power. And then it says, before which three fell. So he comes up, and apparently three of these ten kings don't want to relinquish their power, and so the Antichrist just destroys them. So the angel is telling us what's going to happen in this end times government. There's going to be ten leaders. Three of them are going to rebel and they're going to be wiped out. So I'll go back to verse 20. And the ten horns, the ten kings, were on its head, the revived Roman Empire. And the other horn, the Antichrist, which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. So, how do we know it's the Antichrist? Well, he's human. He has eyes, he has a mouth, and he speaks against God. Pompous words, he's blaspheming God. And his appearance is greater than his fellows. What do you think that means in verse 20 there? His appearance is greater than his fellows. He's more powerful, yeah. They have a prison of authority, but he has the higher position. He is the most important. Verse 21. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Uh, now, do you remember reading about that in chapter 12? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what Revelation chapter 12 says. The Antichrist will come and make war against the saints and will overcome them. Until the Ancient of Days came. Now, who's the Ancient of Days? Jesus. So this will continue, this persecution of the saints, 
will continue until Jesus comes back. And a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. Remember, God is on the throne. He makes a judgment. He says, that's it. Time to finish his persecution. The Antichrist has had his time. Time's up. Bang. He's out of there. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So that's us. We come back with Christ, but it's also the believers from the tribulation who go into the millennial kingdom. And the angel continues his interpretation of Daniel's vision, and it's going to be some repetition here, which is good. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. That's the interpretation. That's the Roman Empire. The beast is a kingdom. Verse 24, the ten horns of the ten kings which shall arise from this kingdom. Again, what's this kingdom? The Roman Empire. And another shall arise after them. So another what? Another horn. Horn represents what? Another king. Okay, another king shall arise after them. Who's them? The ten toes, the ten horns, it's the ten kings. And shall subdue three kings. Verse 25, he, who's he? Yet the little horn, the one that rises up, the other horn, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. So as we learned about in chapter 12 of Revelation, when Satan is cast down to earth, he breaks his covenant with Israel and he starts to persecute the saints. And here it says, for how long? Does it agree with Revelation or is there a problem? It says for a time, times and half a time. How long is that? Three and a half years. So time is one year. Times, that's double. Double one is two, and half a time is a half. So one plus two is three, and three plus a half is three and a half. So, questions of what we just read. I'm going to go back to verse 19 to 22. Again, this is repetition to help you remember this. Who was the fourth beast in verse 19? Roman Empire, good. What do the ten horns represent in verse 20? The ten kings, good. Who come from the Roman Empire? And how do we know that? It's verse 20 and 24. From which kingdom or empire do the ten kings come from? The Roman Empire, very good. It says in verse 20, the other horn which came up before which three fell. Who does the other horn represent? The beast or the Antichrist, very good. And it says also the three which fell. Who are the three which fell? Three of the ten kings. Good. Who is that horn that had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows? The Antichrist. How do we know that this other horn signifies a real person, not just a kingdom? Well, Verse 20, he had eyes, he can see, he has a mouth, he can speak, and he has a mind to make his own decisions, his own language, and he speaks blasphemy against God. 
going to put out two more verses here. Verse 21 and 25, it says, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. And then verse 25, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for time, times and half a time. So the question is, how long is time, times and half a time? And just so you can see it, if it doesn't make sense to you, it's on the screen. Time is one year. Times is double one year, which makes two years. Because in the Hebrew, they actually have a word which means double. And half a time, half is half, so half of one year. So one plus two is three, plus a half is three and a half. Now, why is that significant? What's three and a half years? How does that fit into the tribulation? It's half, isn't it? Half of seven is three and a half. Okay, so now we're going to get a bit more specific. When does this happen? Is it in the first half of the tribulation or the second half of the tribulation? If you're in Revelation 12 and listening to that, you would know that it happens in the second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble when the Antichrist reveals himself for who he is. You know, the mark of the beast happens and he starts killing anyone who's a believer. Very angry. Why is he angry? This is going back to a couple of weeks ago. He was cast down from who? Heaven, because he had this what? He had this war. Who did he fight with? Michael the archangel. So Michael and his good angels fought against Satan and his bad angels. Now, prior to this battle, which happens at the halfway point, in Revelation 12. Satan and his bad angels had access to heaven. Okay? But after this point, after the halfway point of the tribulation, they no longer have access to heaven. And he comes back, he knows that Revelation says he knows that his time is short and he's really, really angry. And so his mission on earth now is to hunt down and kill every believer, Jew or Gentile. And the main point that we made last time was that the Second half of the tribulation is going to be much more violent and terrible than the first half. As I said, Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation. Now, who is going to be controlling the Antichrist? Satan, yeah. He's going to be possessed or controlled by Satan some way. So if Satan is in a rage, who else is going to be angry? The Antichrist is going to be angry. So he is just simply doing the will of Satan. He's almost like Satan's puppet. But he's still exercising his free will to do what Satan wants him to do. And he's responsible for his actions. But at the same time, he's still controlled by Satan. He's relinquished control of his will to Satan. It's his decision. Bad decision. And in addition to this horrible persecution of the saints, there's going to be God's judgments during the tribulation. And the judgments towards the end of the tribulation are going to be almost unbearable. The level of suffering and the amount of death is going to be incredible. So, again, when does Satan and the Antichrist ramp up their persecution of the saints and of Israel? First half or second half of the tribulation? Verse 
second half. Good. Okay. So I'm just going to go back to what we've read previously. In Revelation 12, 6 and 13 to 17, just to show you where that came from. So Revelation 12, 6 and 13 to 17. Then the woman, who's the woman? Israel, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. That was like Moab, uh, Edom, Jordan today. That they should feed her there 1,260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years. Now when the dragon, who's the dragon? Satan saw that he had been cast to the earth. He persecuted the woman, who's a woman? Israel, who gave birth to the male child. Who's that? Jesus. But the woman, who is Israel, was given the wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Three and a half years. It's the last three and a half years. From the presence of the serpent. Who's the serpent? Satan. Verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. The woman is Israel. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who's that? The believers in the tribulation. Jew or Gentile. So, to summarize, let's ask some questions about what we learned today. Let's see if you know this. Number one, who are the final four world empires from the time of Daniel? And the answer is not in the war this time. Babylon is first. The Medo-Persian Empire. The Grecian Empire. And then the Roman Empire. Fantastic. Okay. And question two. What is the correct order of the following four events? Return of Jesus Christ, the second coming. The thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The rapture. The tribulation. They're there, but they're not in the right order. Which one comes first? The rapture, very good. Second? The tribulation. Yep. Third? Return of Jesus Christ, the second coming. And then the thousand year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Fantastic. So that's the order of events there. Third question What do the ten toes or ten horns represent? Ten kings? Yep. The, how many other? Ten. And they come from which kingdom? Fourth beast, which is Rome. And how long do they rule for? Seven years, which is the tribulation. Is that past, present, or future? Future. Very good. Okay. How is the Antichrist represented in Daniel 7? As a little horn or a horn that comes up, okay, after the ten kings. Question 5. What does Daniel 7 and Revelation 12 say that the Antichrist will do to the tribulation saints? He will make war with them, meaning he will try and kill them, and he will kill most of them and prevail. Yes. Okay. How long will the Antichrist make war with and overcome the saints? Three and a half years. Yep. Last question. During which half of the tribulation will the Antichrist be persecuting the saints? The first half or the second half? Second half. What's it also called? The Great Tribulation or Jacob's Trouble? Fantastic. And the whole tribulation is also called in the Old Testament the 
day of the Lord. Fantastic. So, application for today. I want to remind you that we are living in the last days, but we don't need to fear, but rather we should be encouraged as we see God's plans unfolding before our very eyes. This world is heading towards a one-world government. If you look around, if you read the news, if you dig a little bit deeper, there is a global alliance forming. And countries are losing their sovereignty. So my advice to you is keep your ears open for the trumpet call. When Jesus comes back, he's going to blow a trumpet. We'll hear that and we'll rise to meet him in the air. And have a very light touch on the things of this world. Remember that Jesus could come any time now and we don't want to be ashamed when he snatches us up from the earth to be with him. Time is short. Use every day wisely. So the verse to finish today is Ephesians five fifteen to 18. It says, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a secret to living a godly life. You need to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Can someone tell me what Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6 says? Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. There you go. Romans 8, verses 5 and 6. Father, help us to make that decision, to surrender our will to yours, to allow your Spirit to control us. As Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. That means my old life is gone. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. So thank you, Father, for this wonderful provision that you've given us to be able to live a life that pleases you. You have given us everything we need to live a life of goodness and godliness and love and all the fruit of the Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So help us to just submit to you, and we do that, we become strong enough to submit to you by reading your word. Help us to make that time to read your word, and as we do that, we'll learn to love you. As we learn to love you, we want to obey you. As we obey you, we'll experience abiding in you, as we agree with you, and walk with you, and then we'll bear fruit, and your love will be flowing through us, and we'll glorify you in our lives. So help us to do that, Jesus. Amen.